So I want to talk about Lloyd George's strategy vis-à-vis three main groups, uh, although I will concentrate on only two of them. His officials, his cabinet colleagues, as to whom I ask you only to bear in mind what Ken Morgan said in his introduction, that essentially only three members of the Liberal cabinet were really behind the budget. They were Lloyd George himself, Winston Churchill as President of the Board of Trade, and Prime Minister Asquith. And then I want to finish on the behaviour of the unionist opposition, the, as we now know, in retrospect, self-destructive behaviour of the unionists. Start with, uh, um, as we're in the Treasury, it seems appropriate to start with Lloyd George's relationship with the Treasury. As uh, Ken briefly mentioned in his introduction, Lloyd George's relationship with his permanent secretary, Sir George Murray, was appalling. Um, Murray had, earlier in his career, been principal private secretary to Lord Rosebery when Rosebery was Prime Minister. This is 1894 to 1895. Uh, Murray and Rosebery, both Scotsmen, keep up a correspondence uh, into the 1900s, into a period which, be it noted, uh, Rosebery had abandoned the Liberal Party and was by 1909 sitting as a crossbencher in the House of Lords. And here is the most striking letter written by the Permanent Secretary on notepaper-headed Treasury Chambers to a, an opposition peer in, on December uh, uh, 1908. The government seemed to me to be going straight on the rocks financially and perhaps otherwise. This is the Permanent Secretary speaking to an opposition peer. And nobody will listen to me when I tell them so. And here's the punchline. I cannot believe that your house, the House of Lords, will swallow the budget if the mature infant turns out to be anything like the embryo which I now contemplate daily with horror. So we have the Permanent Secretary encouraging the Lords, which is opposition control, to vote down the budget for which he is responsible for advising his Chancellor. Uh, uh, I presented this letter at an earlier seminar some years ago here, uh, which was attended by Gus O'Donnell, who used this letter in uh, an article he wrote for a, a Civil Service Commission book, Changing Times, in which he said, and I agree with him, that those who talk about golden ages in the past when there were proper relationships between civil servants and ministers, unlike the improper relationships which are held to take place now, uh, ought to beware of golden ageism and uh, what Sir George Murray was up to in, during the pro process of the 1909 budget is really quite striking. So with no help from his permanent secretary, uh, as Lord Morgan also mentioned, uh, Lloyd George... Lloyd George's principal official advice he took from Sir Robert Chalmers, who was chairman of the Board of Inland Revenue. Now, Chalmers, I would say, had the opposite problem, and that is that he was too keen on the on the budget and on the politics of the um, of the of the Chancellor. Uh, he is recorded uh, as having said when the Lords rejected the budget. I would like to festoon this room with their entrails, those of the unionist peers. Uh, so he was getting no helpful advice from his permanent secretary. He was 
getting advice from the chairman of Board of Inland Revenue, which I assume reflected his own partisanship. He turned to outside advisors, and his principal outside advisor on um, land tax was an enthusiast for this called Edgar Harper. Uh, but Harper, being an enthusiast, woefully underestimated the complications of valuation. We heard about that from Dr. Packer. And therefore, at a technical sense, Lloyd George went into the budget quite seriously under-advised by his office. Nevertheless, Lloyd George was clearly both an utterly infuriating minister to work for, I would guess, but also, to those who were on his wavelength, a very inspiring one. The best evidence for this comes from um, a, a memoir written by one of the civil servants who uh, assisted him with national insurance in 1911, uh, W.J. Braithwaite, uh, published many years later under the title Lloyd George's Ambulance Wagon. So the ambulance wagon, which was, was an image of Lloyd George's own, uh, was the group of people who were coming to the aid of the, of the crippled and sick and at risk of being unemployed working class. The ambulance wagon nevertheless comprised officials who had themselves come from a background in, in perhaps in the insurance industry and who wanted, who tried to demand of the 1911 government and of, of their minister Lloyd George that uh, a national insurance scheme should be actuarially sound. And it was already very clear to officials what the problems of this were, that uh, national insurance was going to pick up people who were rather poor, relatively poor risks and therefore uh, an actuarially sound scheme was going to be expensive to fund and yield rather few benefits. Not what the politicians want. And we get a couple of glimpses from Braithwaite's memoirs of how Lloyd George handled this. Uh, Braithwaite says, uh, Lloyd George, of course, LG, of course, thought of supplementary arguments. Why accumulate a fund? The state could not manage property or invest with wisdom. It would be very bad for politics if the state owned a huge fund. The proper course for the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and you can hear Lloyd George speaking here, was to let money fructify in the pockets of the people and take it only when he wanted it. So Lloyd George, on the hoof, is making arguments for an actuarially unsound pay-as-you-go scheme, which essentially, despite uh, appearance, surface appearance to the contrary, is what national insurance was in 1911 and has been ever since. At one point, records Braithwaite, um, uh, when they're having another argument, they're in a country house somewhere, uh, I think they've just had a round of golf, um, the state contributions, Braithwaite insists, must at least make, up, make it up to them if their contributions were to be taken and used by the older people. So he's talking about cross-subsidy across generations. After about half an hour's talk, he went upstairs to dress for dinner, saying over the banisters, I am inclined, after all, to be virtuous. So uh, Lloyd George, as Lord Morgan said, a highly political chancellor uh, with uh, a very unusual relationship with his officials. One class of officials who have not yet been mentioned and they play an important role here 
are the parliamentary officials. And here I can uh, bring out something which I think is complementary to what has been said before. You'll recall uh, from uh, what Dr. Packer said that uh, valuation, uh, that the valuation exercise costs more than the yield of the land taxes. Does this mean that Lloyd Josh just failed to see what was coming? Well, in part it does, it, through the incompetence of Harper and the lack of uh, official advice. But in part it's clear from a cabinet memo early on that Lloyd George knew exactly what he was doing. And he said, it is, he says to the cabinet, it is now clear that it would be impossible to secure a passage of a separate valuation bill during the existence of the present parliament because the House of Lords would vote it down. Therefore, the only possible chance which the government have of redeeming their pledges in this respect is by incorporating proposals involving land valuation in a finance bill. On the other hand, it must be borne in mind that proposals for valuing land which do not form part of a provision for raising revenue in the financial year for which the budget is introduced would probably be regarded as being outside the proper limits of a finance bill by the Speaker of the House of Commons. So, quite early on... Lloyd George is telling the Cabinet that I must put a yield in year one from these taxes in, otherwise the Speaker will um, rule my bill to be hybrid. Uh, he, Lloyd George did not expect the yield to be anything serious, um, but he saw his strategic vision, which is correct, I think, was that the only way to get land valuation onto the statute book was to put it into the finance bill. The only way to avoid a Speaker's hybridity objection was then to put a yield of, as we were told, half a million a year from the land taxes. The fact that their yield was trivial, I argue, does not mean that uh, they were in principle failures. I don't need to say any more about the Cabinet because Lord Morgan um, introduced it, but let me uh, uh, just quote from uh, Lloyd George's right-hand man at the time, Winston Churchill, who, in a propaganda book, The People's Rights, published after the rejection of the budget by the Lords and before the general election, um, says the following, which it seems to me is just as germane to policymakers today. He starts talking about the enrichment which comes to the landlord who, ha who happens to own a plot of land on the outskirts or at the centre of one of our great cities who watches the busy population around him making the city larger, richer, more convenient, more famous every day, and all the while sits still and does nothing. Roads are made. Streets are made. Railway services are improved. Electric light turns night into day. Electric trams glide swiftly to and fro. Well, in Edinburgh that'll come, but not in, in the immediate future. Water is brought from reservoirs a hundred miles off in the mountains, and all the while the landlord sits still. Every one of those improvements is effected by the labour and at the cost of other people. And, and skipping a bit, to not one of those improvements does the land monopolist as a land monopolist contribute. And yet, by every one of them, the value of his land is sensibly enhanced. Now that, it seems to me, is a knockdown argument, which a few politicians were brave enough to make in 1909. I don't observe it being made to any great extent in 2009, but uh, it's no worse an argument now than it was then. Finally, um, what hasn't yet been covered is the Unionist reaction um, and 
I'll pick up the question that a couple of the previous speakers have made. Uh, did they, did Lloyd George intend from the beginning to provoke them, uh, to provoke them into rejecting the budget? And I agree with those who have already said, no, that wasn't his intention from the outset. I think the Cabinet memo that I've read uh, tends to show that he was, in the beginning of the presentation of the budget, he was trying to circumvent the opposition, not to provoke them. Uh, however, it's also clear that uh, they played into his hands and he realised that they were playing into his hands. Um, here, as evidence in a, my book Rational Choice in British Politics a few years ago, I picked out a letter which he wrote to his brother, um, who was a confidant of his as a solicitor in North Wales. He says, in August of 1909... There is undoubtedly a popular rising such as has not been witnessed over a generation. What will happen if they throw it out, I can conjecture. And I rejoice at the prospect. So this is by August he has come round to that view, or at least he tells his brother that he has. Many a rotten institution, system and law will be submerged by the deluge. I wonder whether they will be such fools. I am almost wishing they would be stricken with blindness. And... As we know, they were such fools, and from at least August, well, probably July of 1909, Lloyd George is egging them on, um, and uh, the, uh, above all, the, the, the land, how, landed interest in the House of Lords uh, falls straight into his trap. The Duke of Buccleuch uh, announced that because of the swinging impact of land tax, he would no, no longer be able to pay a guinea subscription to his local football club. Uh, this was made up by quite a number of Liberal MPs making shilling subscriptions to the football club in Dumfries. And um, undoubtedly by um, October of 1909, Lloyd George was in egging on mood. Nobody has yet quoted the great Newcastle speech, so I'm going to take the liberty of doing so. The question will be asked, should 500 men Ordinary men, chosen accidentally from among the unemployed, override the judgment, the deliberate judgment, of millions of people who are engaged in the industry which makes the wealth of the country? That is one question. Another will be, who ordained that a few should have the land of Britain as a perquisite? Who made 10,000 people owners of the, of the soil and the rest of us trespassers in the land of our birth? They don't do political speeches like that anymore. So the, que the remaining question is, why did the Unionists fall into Lloyd George's trap, as it undoubtedly was by the autumn of 1909? Well, uh, the Conservative and Unionist Party had, at the time, a weak Commons leader and a strong, and I think very limited, Lords leader. The weak Commons leader, A.J. Balfour, had... First of all, uh, an extremely small Commons parliamentary party because of the landslide in seats of 1906. It was also a deeply divided party, as we've heard from Dr. Trentman. Um, uh, the uh, protectionists were dominant by 1909, but there were still some free traders. And I would class the plight of the Conservative Party in 1909 as being very similar to the plight of the Conservative Party in 1992 to 7 when it was de equally deeply divided over Europe. The leader of the uh, Unionists in the Lords, Lord Lansdowne, 
uh, what himself, an Irish landowner, think of Lansdowne Park in Dublin, um, had all the extremism of his predecessor, Lord Salisbury, but none of Lord Salisbury's guile or capacity to uh, pull back when things became too extreme. And I think the, um, the simplest and most vulgar explanation of the Lord's resistance is a, a vulgarly Marxist one. Karl Marx actually himself got it wrong because in 1852 he wrote that uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846 has uh, transformed the class struggle in Britain from one between uh, land and capital to one between capital and labour. But in fact, Karl Marx forgot about the House of Lords. Uh, in the House of Lords, it was still a class struggle between the interests of land and everybody else. And hence, I believe, the Lords' utterly self-destructive behaviour uh, because I think the evidence of by-election trends is that the Liberals and Allies would not have won the uh, general election of January 1910, but for the rejection of the budget by the House of Lords. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.